Florano, and welcome to City Breaks Florence, episode 18. We're coming towards the end of the series now, and so I'd like to focus this penultimate episode on some of the history and travel writing that I've enjoyed reading in the preparation for the series, in the hope that you too might be prompted to find one or two of them and do a little further research on your own. So, starting with the history books, there are three excellent books which I'd like to recommend, and the first one is called Florence, The Biography of a City, written in 1993 by Christopher Hibbert. It's 27 chapters, over 300 pages, and it's a complete history of the city from Roman times right up to and including the floods of 1966. It's a very interesting read all the way through, tells you all sorts of things you need to know to keep the history in perspective, but much more than that, it has lots of little details and portraits painted of particular scenes that you can really imagine, especially if you've already been to Florence. So here, for example, is Christopher Hibbert on a day in the 1930s when Hitler came to call and was duly shown round Florence by one Mussolini. So this is what he has to write about that. Quote, The Duce and the Führer were driven along the route in an open car, acknowledging the cheers with their characteristic salutes. They were taken to Santa Croce to pay their respects at the shrine dedicated to the fascist dead. They were entertained in the Boboli Gardens with a series of tableaux celebrating the glories of Florence's medieval past. They were conducted round the galleries of the Pitti Palace, Hitler appearing to be much more interested in the works of art than the Duce, who looked bored and later complained that looking at pictures tired him. They attended a performance of Verdi's opera, Simone Bocinegra, they went to the Palazzo della Signoria, where Mussolini wrote gratefully and proudly in the visitor's book Firenze Fascistissima, and they appeared together on the palace balcony to a tumultuous roar of welcome from the people crowded together in the piazza below. Christopher Hibbert often quotes other people too, so for example in this chapter he's come across the writings of one lady, Una Trubridge, who was living in Florence at the time and wrote quite a lot about the preparations that were made for Mussolini's reception so that he would never forget where he'd been and then he quotes her talking about this writing for example quote such preparations were made for Mussolini's reception as the Florentines were never likely to forget from house to house across the narrow streets and across the facades of the ancient palaces were hung great swathes of evergreens studded with brightly coloured fruits Every house, including our own, was supplied with silken flags, hand-painted and fringed. So both for his own writing and for all these lovely little cameos that he inserts into the text, I can certainly recommend Christopher Hibbert's book to you. Another book on which I lent quite heavily is a book called The Medici by Paul Strathan, which was published in 2003. And here again, you get not just the history and the facts, but you get lots of insights that perhaps you wouldn't think of for yourself. So here, for example, is Mr Strathan talking about the amount of money that Cosimo de' Medici spent on art. Cosimo, you'll remember, had been founding the building or the renovation of palaces and libraries and churches and monasteries. And this is how Mr. Strathan puts it into context. Quote, when his grandson Lorenzo the Magnificent examined the books many years later, he was flabbergasted at the amounts that Cosimo had sunk into these schemes. The accounts would reveal that between 1434 and 1471, a staggering 663,755 gold florins had been spent. Such a sum is difficult to put into context. 
Suffice to say that just over a century beforehand, the entire assets of the great Peruzzi Bank, at its height, accumulated in branches all over Western Europe and ranging beyond to Cyprus and Beirut, were the equivalent of 103,000 gold florins. It's always difficult to put numbers into perspective, but reading that Cosimo had spent six times the profits of an entire bank just on art and architecture helps you understand the scale of the thing. Another book that I can warmly recommend is also entitled The Medici, published a bit later than Paul Strathan's book. It's written by Mary Hollingsworth and was published in 2015. And she too is very good at letting you read between the lines. So for example, on the subject of the personality of Lorenzo Il Magnifico, she gives us some lovely examples of just how adept he was at scheming and getting his way by all kinds of underhand means. So, for example, she tells us that he decided it would be a good idea to marry his 14-year-old daughter, Maddalena, to the son of the Pope, because that would advance the Medici cause, despite the fact that, as Mary Hollingsworth put it, the prospective son-in-law was, quote, a dissolute gambler in his 30s. Then she goes on to tell us that Lorenzo had to pay for this privilege. We learn from the book that he handed over a dowry of 7,000 florins and that also he wasn't above calling in other favours to make this project come to fruition. So here we are, for example, quote, Among other expenses, Lorenzo had settled his prospective son-in-law's large gambling debts and paid the price of making him Lord of Cerviteri, a papal fief bought from Lorenzo's Orsini in-laws. And he's very grateful that this all comes to pass and not above saying so quite openly. So Mary Hollingsworth quotes him a bit later, writing that how pleased he is. Quote, I greatly appreciate this, not just for the profits it will bring us, but also because everyone now knows that I am in favour with his holiness and that will gain me much more. Lorenzo also schemed ahead on behalf of future generations. He had decided, for example, that his own son, Giovanni, really should be a cardinal, and that required quite a lot of palm greasing. So here's Mary Hollingsworth on that. Quote, He had written to his ambassador in Rome in the summer of 1487, asking him to do whatever was necessary to gain favour with the College of Cardinals, whose support would be necessary. You can offer them everything you can in my name, he urged, and whether they want one thing rather than another, I will ensure that it is done. She goes on to give us examples of how trying to impress Alfonso of Calabria, for example, whom he knew to be designing a villa, he sent one of his own architects along and a craftsman to make sure that the project went well. And then in an attempt to woo one of the other cardinals, we hear the following, quote, as part of his campaign to curry favour with the College of Cardinals for Giovanni's red hat, Lorenzo arranged for the painter Filippino Lippi to stop work on a project in Florence in order to take up the commission to decorate Cardinal Carafa's chapel in Santa Maria Sopra Minerva in Rome and asked one of the employees at the bank to make sure Carafa was satisfied with the result, ensuring that the Cardinal would owe him a favour in return. There's lots more detail about other people whom he tried to butter up and certain people whom he had eliminated or undone in some way so that they would cease to be rivals. And of course, in the end, the plan came to fruition and Giovanni was indeed elected as a cardinal. So again, you get the history, but you also get the insight and the explanation, which allows you to enjoy all the intrigues. She's quite amusing too on Giovanni when he actually becomes Pope. So he ruled as Leo X, whom she describes as, quote, genial, fun and rather plump. 
and she talks at some length about how he very much enjoyed living in style, in sumptuous style, as she put it in the Vatican, so, quote, surrounded by tapestries, gold plate, and chairs covered in crimson satin emblazoned with the Medici Palais. She goes on to tell us that his kitchen bills were huge, and then quotes amounts for things spent on peacock's tongues, and all sorts of other edible and drinkable goodies, and how he had to keep having his allowance increased. And we really are left with a lovely picture of excess and indulgence. I can't resist one more quote. His official household role contained 683 names, a large court by the standards of the time, including the Master of the Hunt, two doctors, an astrologer, and 54 men involved in the cooking and serving of food for the papal dining rooms. His buffoon, Fra Mariano, was famous for his coarse jokes and legendary appetite. He was said to have eaten 40 eggs and 20 chickens at one sitting. Also on the list was the keeper of Leo X's pet Indian elephant, a present from King Manuel of Portugal. Hanno was a famous sight in Rome and even had his portrait painted by Leo X's court artist, Raphael. It's wonderful stuff, isn't it? I can't recommend it too highly. Moving on to art history, there were two books that I found really useful. One is called Art and Architecture in Florence by Rolf C. Wirtz. I think it's German, but there is an English copy. It was published in 2005. It's a chunky little book, 560 pages thick, and it's mainly pictorial, and it's got the most lovely pull-outs where you get whole panoramas of buildings and paintings and things. And it's also got some very informative panels of text on topics like Dante and the plague. And then, of course, when we come to art history, we absolutely have to mention Giorgio Vasari, who was thought to be perhaps the world's first art historian, was writing in the 16th century, so had personal knowledge of some of the artists about whom he wrote, and certainly much more recent knowledge of them than anything we can come up with today. I've quoted from him lots through the various episodes, so just to remind you, he wrote pen portraits of 46 artists, including all the ones that we've been interested in with regard to Florence, Cimabui, Giotto, Brunelleschi, Donatello, Lippi, Botticelli, Michelangelo, all of them. He's believed to have been the first man perhaps to have used the term Renaissance, and so he's useful for his scholarship, but also actually for his anecdotes and his love of gossip. It's from Vasari, for example, that we get the story of Cimabue walking over the hillsides outside Florence one day, when he was astounded to find a young shepherd boy with a real talent for drawing, who was, instead of looking after his sheep as he was supposed to be, busy scratching out pictures on a stone with a second pointed stone, and in whom he immediately recognised a talent. The boy, of course, was Giotto, and Vasari goes on to tell us how he was taken in to Cimabue's workshop and taught, and how in the end he became possibly even much better than the master who taught him, and went on, in fact, to push the art of painting much further into the modern era. So here's Vasari on this topic. Quote, the child not only equalled the manner of his master, but became so good an imitator of nature that he banished completely that rude Greek manner and revived the modern art of good painting introducing the portraying well from nature of living people which had not been used for more than 200 years. So that's the art historian role. He's saying this was one of the first people who decided not to draw the rather stylized figures that people before him had drawn, but to try and actually paint people from life so that they would look like real people. 
and therefore be much more accessible to people looking at them, bearing in mind, of course, that many people got their knowledge of, for example, all things biblical from paintings because they couldn't read. Vasari is quite good at telling us where the works of various artists can be found. So, for example, Andrea Pisano, he tells us you can see some work of his in San Paolo in Florence or in the Church of Onnisanti, but he's not always totally fulsome in his praise. So, for example, about the latter, he wrote, quote, They are so made that they move those who view them rather to laughter than to any marvel or pleasure. Ouch. He tells us, though, that Taddeo Gaddi was, for example, quote, very resolute in draftsmanship, and he has praise, too, for a sea painting done by Gaddi, quote, wherein he showed very good judgment and grace in a boat that he painted, demonstrating that he had complete understanding of the tempestuous agitation of the sea and of the fury of the storm. So those five books are definitely ones which I could recommend. Moving on to the idea of travellers who've been to Florence, there has been, of course, an absolutely endless procession of people, well-known and not so well-known, who visited the city, and many of whom have left their writings about their impressions and what, how they saw it, some of which can give you perspectives that you might otherwise miss about some of the places that you might be visiting. As early as 1763, for example, the well-known actor David Garrick was in Florence, and he wrote in a letter to the Duke of Devonshire the following, quote, I am astonished at the fine profusion of things we meet with in every part of this city. It's a great introduction, I think, to the idea that there really is an endless supply of wonder and beauty in Florence. And as early as the mid-18th century, somebody was recognising that. A little bit later, in 1789, Arthur Young, who'd also been travelling, wrote the following about the city, quote, the circumstance that strikes one at Florence is the antiquity of the principal buildings. Everything one sees considerable is of three or four hundred years standing. Of new buildings there are next to none. All here remind one of the Medici. There is hardly a street that is not some monument, some decoration that bears the stamp of that splendid and magnificent family. But it was particularly in the 19th century when the idea of the Grand Tour became popular that Florence really started to feature a lot in travel writings. So I'm just going to give you a flavour of a few of them. So there's one William Cullen Bryant, for example. He sounds American, does he not? Writing in 1834 in a book called Letters of a Traveller, the following. Florence, from the residence of the court and from the vast numbers of foreigners who throng to it, presents during several months of the year an appearance of great bustle and animation. I think if you've been to Florence on anything but a freezing cold day, you will certainly have experienced exactly the bustle and animation of that often very crowded city. A few years later, it was one Charles Dickens who was visiting in 1846, and he wrote about his findings in a book called Pictures from Italy. And he too was very impressed by how much there was to see and how varied it was. Quote, Magnificently stern and sombre are the streets of beautiful Florence, and the strong old piles of building make such heaps of shadow on the ground and in the river that there is another and different city of rich forms and fancies always lying at our feet. At almost exactly the same time, one year later in fact, in 1847, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was setting up home in Florence with her husband the poet Robert Browning. They were very lucky that they found a flat in a building called the Casa Guidi, which is just around the corner from the Palazzo Pitti, and she wrote quite honestly about this in the following words, quote, We are settled magnificently in this Palazzo Guidi, 
on the first floor in an apartment which looks quite beyond our means and would be, except in the dead part of the season. Somehow or other they were lucky and they thought they would have to move out when the tourists arrived because they would pay more for the rent, but in fact they were allowed to stay and they set about furnishing the place, redecorating it. In fact, they had the drawing room all painted in the colours of the forbidden Italian Risorgimento flag, red, white and green, showing whose side they were on. They were obviously in favour of the idea of Italian unification. She describes the flat as follows, quote, cool and in a delightful situation, six paces from the Piazza Pitti and with right of daily admission to the Bobbly Gardens. So if you yourself go wandering in the Bobbly Gardens, you may like to think there were times in the mid-19th century when Elizabeth Barrett Browning herself was wandering through. And here she is on the Duomo, quote, this cathedral, the mountainous marble masses overcome as we look up, we feel the weight of them on the soul. Tessellated marbles, the green treading its elaborate pattern into the dim yellow, which seems the general hue of the structure, climb against the sky, self-crowned with that prodigy of marble domes. It struck me as a wonder in architecture. So you can certainly read her thoughts on places that you yourself might be visiting, but in fact she wrote in some of her letters about some much more mundane aspects. For example, the weather in Florence and how amazing it was to be so warm as early as March. This is what she wrote in 1853 in a letter to Miss Mitford. Quote, Think of somebody advising me the other day not to send out a child without a double-lined parasol. There's a precaution for March. The sun is powerful and we are rejoicing in the Italian climate. You may remember one Sophia Peabody from the episode on the Uffizi. She it was who was a bit snooty about some of the lesser mortals who were found looking at the paintings there. But she wrote beautifully about the city itself. So here she is, for example, in something written in 1858 entitled Notes from England and Italy. She's on a twilight walk through the city and she writes, quote, We came upon a bridge which crosses the Arno and a scene of varied beauty opened upon us. The river was as smooth as plate glass, and all of Florence that was near it ascended, or rather descended, into the pure depths of the heaven beneath. It was not possible to tell where the immaterial city began and the city ended. From Mark Twain's autobiography, written in 1892, we have the following description of Florence seen from afar. Quote, in the distant plain lay Florence, pink and grey and brown, with the rusty huge dome of the cathedral dominating its centre like a captive balloon, and flanked on the right side by the smaller bulb of the Medici chapel, and on the left by the airy tower of the Palazzo Vecchio. All around the horizon was a billowy rim of lofty blue hills, snowed white with innumerable villas. After nine months of familiarity with this panorama, I still think, as I thought in the beginning, that this is the fairest picture on our planet, the most enchanting to look upon, the most satisfying to the eye and the spirit. Henry James was there for the summer of 1877, staying with some friends who had a villa at Bello Sguardo, and he describes spending a lot of time sitting in their garden in the summer and autumn sunshine and just staring into the never-to-be-enough-appreciated view of the little city and the mountains. He too was struck by the beauty of Florence, and actually what he writes really marks the time before it became very busy again with tourists. It seems to be in a bit of a lull at the, in the mid-19th century. This is how he describes it. Quote, Florence had never seemed to me more lovely, empty, melancholy, 
bankrupt, as I believe she is, she is turning into an old, sleeping, soundless city. This sensible sadness, with the glorious weather, gave the place a great charm. I think we can probably agree that quiet and melancholy isn't the atmosphere that we feel when we go there today. Here's Matthew Arnold from 1879. He's writing from Florence to his sister, and he says, quote, Florence is the most enchanting place I know in the world. The cathedral outside, not inside, is to my feeling the most beautiful church in the world, and it always looks to me like a hen gathering its chicken under its wings. It stands in such a soft, lovely way, with Florence around it. So again, a picture of the city as a quiet backwater, quite different from how it became in the 20th century. In the early 20th century, we have the journals of Arnold Bennett, written in 1910, in which he rather charmingly describes just an ordinary working day, really. He'd obviously was spending time in France to get on with his writing, and he wrote in his diary the following. At 3.45pm, I had written 2,800 words. Not a bad day. And I bought 70 postcards yesterday, chiefly sculpture and Florence. So we're beginning to get there, the idea of it not just being a place to spend time for writing, but becoming something a bit more touristy, something where visitors would come and want to tell other people about what they'd seen. I don't know if he sent his 70 postcards or whether he perhaps kept them as a collection to remind him of the city. And through the 20th century, we get then a picture of Florence as the home of expats, of people who came there perhaps for their retirement and were quite particular in character in many cases. So Aldous Huxley, for example, in his book Along the Road, published in 1925, writes about it like this. Florence is the home of those who cultivate with an equal ardour mahjong and a passion for Fra Angelico. Over tea and crumpets, they talk, if they are too old for love themselves, of their lascivious juniors, but they also make sketches in watercolour and read the little flowers of St Francis. But to end on a more cynical note, here's Dylan Thomas writing from Florence in 1947 and saying, quote, I'm awfully sick of it here, on the beautiful hills above Florence, drinking Chianti in our marble shanty, sick of Vini and Contadini and Bambini, and sicker still when I go, bumbly with mosquito bites, to Florence itself, which is a gruelling museum. If you've spent a long day doing perhaps one too many museums, you might recognise that description. And I'd like to end by moving a little further into the 20th century and focusing on three separate books written by people who spent long periods in Florence and then wrote about it. And the first one is called The Stones of Florence, published in 1959 by Mary McCarthy. Page after page of the most wonderful descriptions which really give you the atmosphere of the city. Here, for example, are a couple of short quotes from a sentence, one of the longest sentences I think I've ever seen. It's about 30 lines long, possibly longer, in which she's describing the chaos in a Florence street. So here is how it opens. There flows a confused stream of human beings and vehicles, baby carriages wheeling in and out of the bobbly garden, old women hobbling in and out of church, grocery carts, bicycles, vespers, lambrettas, motorcycles, topolinos, fiat seicentos, a trailer, a donkey cart from the country delivering sacks of laundry that has been washed with ashes in the old-fashioned way. It goes on and on about more transport and then eventually gets to the sort of people you might meet. For example, quote, pairs of American tourists with guidebooks and maps, children, artists from the Pensione Annalena, clerks, 
priests, housemaids with shopping baskets, stopping to finger the furred rabbits hanging upside down outside the poultry shops. And there's more and there's more. A bit later on, for example, quote, a pair of boys transporting a funeral wreath in the shape of a giant horseshoe, big tourist buses from abroad with guides talking into microphones, trucks full of wine flasks from the Chianti, trucks of crated lettuces, trucks of live chickens, trucks of olive oil, the mail truck, the telegraph boy on a bicycle, which he parks on the street, a tripe vendor, etc, etc. It really is wonderful. I'd highly recommend it to you. There are lots of entertaining little asides in the book like that, which give you a general flavour of Florence. But equally, Mary McCarthy visits a lot of the sites that you or I might visit when we go on our city break. And here too, she often has a very entertaining take. So for example, she goes to the Palazzo Medici Riccardo, where she has a good look at the Benazzo Gozzoli fresco and is amusing on that. So she starts by telling us that, quote, this east-west summit meeting is converted by Benazzo, that's the artist, of course, into a species of delightful wallpaper with a background pattern of Benazzo's famous cypresses, palms and parasol pines. Winding down the Apennines on horses and mules, the eastern cortege has arrived. And then she goes on to make fun of the fact that it wasn't very realistic, to say the least, using, for example, the following description. The painter has put everyone in, everyone who was or might in fancy have been present on the great occasion. Pages and servants and dependents and animals, people who were not yet born or were already dead. And then a bit later on, an equally wonderful description of some of the people who are in the painting as extras, really. Quote, Throughout the fashionable scene, there appear the wonderfully turned, strong, sturdy legs of the young Florentines, dressed as pages and holding spears. The youth... Pink-cheeked boys and girls alike wear gold curls in neat rows that still have a damp look, as though the whole party of them had just come from the hairdresser. And then, written a lot later, published in fact in 2002, and completely different in tone, is David Levitt's book, Florence, A Delicate Case, in which he talks about the life he and his partner, Mark Mitchell led, living in Florence. Its opening line is arresting for a start. Quote, Florence has always been a popular destination for suicides. And it's a very knowledgeable read, full of lots of little asides that you might enjoy. For example, he describes the Santa Maria Novellas train station as being, quote, a handsome testament to fascist atavism. And again, commenting on the cosmopolitan atmosphere in Florence, he writes, Florence is the only European city I can think of where most famous citizens, at least for the last 150 years or so, have all been foreigners. He is very good on all the art and history that there is to enjoy in Florence, and he's quite good at explaining too that there is really so much of it that you're never going to feel that you've finished. So here's his paragraph on that. And what marvels there are. Astonishingly, Florence houses almost a fifth of the world's art treasures. A fifth. A thorough Florentine itinerary takes in architecture, sculpture and painting, major museums, the Bargello and the Uffizi, as well as small ones, the Stibbet and the Horn, public buildings, palaces and innumerable churches, Botticelli, Leonardo's, Michelangelo's, Giotto's, Masaccio's, Angelico's and Gozzoli's, and Pontormo's and Donatello's. And even if you see all of these things, even if you stay in Florence a year or five years, there will still be something that you've missed, some remote church known only to the conoscenti, about which you will be informed only on the eve of your departure. He's very good too on the little things, for example, the food in Florence. Um, there are lists of ingredients from the Florentine diet, for example, chicory sautéed with hot peppers and garlic, 
White beans served at room temperature with fresh olive oil and pepper. Cardi baked with cheese and a white sauce. And then he goes on to mention what he calls the city's famous soups, which would be papa al pomodoro, which is a tomato soup thickened with bread, and a ribolita, which literally means reboiled, because traditionally this soup is made with the leftovers of a previous meal. And he's got a nice anecdote to relate about this. So here goes, quote, A good ribolita is made with beans, carrots, onions, cabbage, hot pepper and leaves of Tuscan black cabbage, the whole thickened, as in papa al pomodoro, with stale and salted bread. Indeed, so mythic is this soup that at Cocciolezzoni, a Florentine trattoria said to be favoured by Prince Charles, a note at the top of the menu warns patrons that, quote, the ringing of the cellular telephone may disturb the cooking of the ribolita. So it's very enjoyable as a general guide to the sights of Florence and the sounds and the smells and the food and everything. But it's also very much a description of Florence in the 1990s, particularly as experienced by the gay couple that he and his partner were living there, with lots of references, for example, to times in history past, references to people like Henry James and Lord Henry Somerset and Lord Alfred Douglas, all of whom escaped to Florence partly to avoid the gossip that they were surrounded by at home. And Levitt's conclusion is that the city really is one of, quote, twin status as a capital of great art and a haven for permissive sexual attitudes. And then as a third, and again completely different in tone, Diary from Florence, it's actually called A Florence Diary. It was published in 2016, but it was actually written by Diana Athill in 1947, when she was about 30. It's very short, only about 40 pages in total, and it's an account of her very first visit abroad by herself, actually in the company of a cousin, but without any so-called adults, in 1947, really to celebrate the end of World War II. And so she's abroad, she's young, she's beautiful, she's determined to enjoy everything, and that's very much the atmosphere that you get from reading it. So you get some nice, interesting little glimpses of Florence from it. So, for example, here's a description of a day out. Quote, we went to the Palazzo Pitti and looked at the most glorious collection of pictures imaginable until we were so exhausted that we could do no more. This does seem to be a theme that keeps recurring, doesn't it, with people who go to Florence? That yes, it's wonderful, but yes, there's an awful lot of it and you need to take it slowly and carefully. She was pretty determined to enjoy everything and have a lovely time, but that didn't stop her showing some discernment and looking at things and thinking, well, that could be even better. So, for example, in Santa Maria Novella, she describes it as, quote, a church which had lovely frescoes, but was badly lit and so dirty that one cannot see the detail at all. She's quite amusing on her visit to the Medici Chapel. Remember the huge marble hall with some of the Medici ancestors interred in it, and about which she writes, quote, it's huge, actually in capital letters, octagonal and entirely lined with precious inlays. It positively stuns one with its magnificence. It isn't a bit to the glory of God, purely the Medici saying, look what our family can do if we want to. Diana Athill, in common with Mary McCarthy, also went to see the Gozzoli fresco in the Palazzo Medici Riccardo, about which she wrote, and the kings come winding down the hillside with their relatives and people hunting in the background. Everything is so exact and rich and alive, the horses prancing, and the hunting cheetahs perched on their cruppers, and the people's faces are portraits of the Medicis, full of life and character. It's luscious. It is very much a description of the culture that she saw and the things that she enjoyed, slightly breathless here and there, and interspersed with 
little descriptions of more prosaic things, so things that she ate and so on. So we hear all about the pastries and the giant juicy peaches that she saw, which must, of course, look splendid shortly after World War II. We hear about the various young men who take the girls out to lunch. We hear all about the straw hat that she bought and how it won her plenty of admiration. And towards the end, after a trip out to Fiesole on the hills just above the city, she writes the following... We've decided to buy a villa up there with an olive orchard and some vines and a couple of fig trees and have all our friends to stay. A sentence which I think reminds you that she was fairly young and full of enthusiasm and just determined to have a lovely time, which in fact I think she did do because the very last sentence of the book reads like this. I really don't think I've ever had such a lovely fortnight in my life. So that, I think, is a nice quotation with which to end our romp through the various people who've been to Florence and written about it afterwards, the travel writers, if you will. That brings us to the end then of the penultimate episode. There's just one to go. And next week, I'm intending to look again at things that people have written about Florence, but this time in a more literary sense. We'll have a look at one or two Florentine authors and what they wrote, and we'll have a look at what people like Elizabeth Barrett Browning and Robert Browning wrote while they were in Florence, and at some more recent novels, which are set in the city. So all of that to come. I hope you'll be able to join me for that last episode. But meanwhile, it just remains for me to thank you very much for listening today. Grazie. And to wish you goodbye in Italian. Arrivederci. Mm -hmm.